Hey everyone, it's Sam again. I hope you guys have been doing alright since I last talked to you. I want to start off by saying that I'm not feeling too great right now, and there's really no point in stalling on telling you why. A little while ago I had only gotten a short bit away into writing this letter. I got some bad news that made me scrap the original idea. If you've listened to my previous letters, you may remember me talking about my friend William. He's a hunter from Australia who I've known for a very long time, and we're very close. For a long time, we've visited back and forth in each other's countries, and we make it a point to get together at least twice a year. Even with an ocean between us, we talk to each other very often. His family history is rough, and I think it's largely because of this that he's not a super social guy. William and I are alike in a lot of ways, one of those being that we've both lost significant others in very sudden ways. William retired from being a capital H hunter after he lost his right leg after going after a blue mountain cat. That was only a few years ago, and with being a hunter off the table, he was able to settle down and wound up getting married to a woman named Kristen. They had a daughter, a girl who they had named Rain, a little less than a year ago, and they were happy for a while. Not too long after Rain was born, they were all going down the highway when a cargo truck on the opposite side of the road lost some of the crates it was carrying. One of the cars behind it swerved to avoid the crates and wound up crashing into William and his family. Following this incident, Will and Rain were mostly okay, but Kristen passed away from her injuries. It really wrecked William, and I think because of that he's been a lot more reclusive for the past long while. He really doesn't talk to many people, with me being one of the very few exceptions, and as if... He and Rain suffered enough. William gave me the news a few days ago that he just got diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer, and it's terminal. He's been a smoker for a long time now, and even though I've told him so many goddamn times that he needed to quit, he never did. And he went on for years before his diagnosis. I know that Kristen's death made his habit worse, but I don't think either of us really expected it to get this bad. I guess a lot of people don't expect it either. The doctors told William that he had around a half a year left, and probably less. It really hurts because this guy has gone toe-to-toe with some of the most terrifying and powerful creatures on the planet, and his life is ending because of something so much smaller. What makes things even more complicated is Rain. Obviously, she isn't going to have either of her parents. William has been trying to figure out what to do for her. So we both talked it over with Serena and collectively made the decision that Serena and I are going to take Rain in. We've got plenty of animal friends in our family, but Serena and I are getting a bit old to have kids. We think that Rain would fit right in with us, and I know that Serena is going to make an amazing mom. Hopefully, I can do half as good of a job as a dad. So, it's a whole lot of emotions and multi-layered situation. I've been consciously grieving William and getting ready to welcome Rain at the same time. It's a huge amount of stuff to wrestle with, but I've found these letters helpful with processing things in the past, and they've at least been a decent distraction too. So I'll keep writing them for as long as I'm able to, although eventually I'm sure I'll have to say goodbye again. For now, Serena and I are getting ready to head out to Australia so that we can start getting this thing in order. It's already starting to be a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy nonsense, but our goal is to spend as much time as possible with William and Rain, and I'm sure it'll all work out in the end somehow. It's a mixed situation, but we're all going through it together. So that's what's really been on my mind, but I don't want this letter to be super heavy. William is a great guy, and despite his struggles, I've known him to be very, truly positive, strong, kind, and a gentle person. I want to remember him like that and I want to share that with you guys some more as well. Purely by chance, even before I knew of William's recent diagnosis, I was already going to write a letter about one of the experiences we've had together. I brought the idea up in my previous letter and I was planning to hold off until after the big Q&A, but in the wake of getting the bad news, I think that now is just a fine time to share the story. So, although it may be a bit on the short side, I want to dedicate this letter to William and that experience, because William is nothing short of a hero, and I'm going to tell you about how he saved not only my life, but the lives of others too. Partly because this is a special letter, and partly because now I'm saving all the questions for the big one next time, I'm going to skip the Q&A again for this letter, but I promise that I'll get to it next time.
So, keep asking your questions. Right now, let's get right to the background for the William story I'm going to tell today. This story that I'm going to recount in this letter is when William, Heather, Caroline, and yours truly got into a scrap with a band of Amikuk in Alaska. This was a very strange and terrifying experience, largely because Amikuk are strange and terrifying creatures. I'll start by giving you a description of their appearance so you can get an idea of why I say that. Amikuk look a bit like a cross between a lizard, a weasel, a pangolin, a spider, and a frog with a little bit of goblin thrown in there for good measure. Some hunters, as a matter of fact, call them ground ghouls. Let me explain. Amikuk have long bodies with four legs that sit slightly to the sides of their body, rather than directly underneath them. Their front legs are long to the point that their arms, and when moving around on land, Amikuk have their limbs out to the sides and sort of scuttle like spiders or insects. All in Amikuk's limbs end in claws, but their front claws are long and slightly curved, resembling the shape of a pickaxe. These claws are also semi-retractable, meaning the Amikuk can pull them in about halfway if needed. Their tails are long and thick, much like a lizard, and their backs and upper halves are covered in hard, rough plates or scales of keratin, the same material that makes up your hair and nails, as well as things like animal fur and horns. Amikuk plates are white or light gray, similar in thickness and hardness to something like a rhinoceros's horn, and rough and sharp like a shark scale. The rest of their bodies are covered in short, scattered, pin-like hairs on top of leathery, black, and dark gray skin. Size-wise, Amikuk are big, standing about three or four feet tall, and measuring well over seven feet from their heads to the tips of their tails. As if all this wasn't weird enough, Amikuk faces are the creepiest part of their bodies. They have slight snouts and two small eyes that glow reddish-orange when the light hits them. A strip of white skin goes in a band around the area where their eyes are. On top and bottom of their heads, Amikuk have tendrils that are about half a foot long. These act as feelers and help them find their way around in the darkness, and Amikuk mouths are wide stretching all the way around their faces and filled with razor-sharp teeth. These teeth are so numerous and long that they seem to keep Amikuk's mouth stuck in a permanent grin, which, as you might imagine, can be incredibly disturbing to see. Their claws and facial tendrils are key parts of their anatomy because they allow them to navigate their underground habitats. They live along the edges of Alaska, both around the coast and more inland. Because of this, they are semi-aquatic, spending much of their time in the water as well on land. But when on land, Amikuk don't spend much time above ground. This is because they're excellent diggers, and much like a prairie dog or ant, Amikuk excavate tunnel systems that span huge distances, carving through ice, stone, and soil to create these far-reaching burrows. Because of this, Amikuk are poorly understood it's very hard to find something subterranean like this, and even harder to study it. It's not known exactly why Amikuk dig like this, but it may have something to do with catching prey. Amikuk are amazing at pinpointing the location of prey on the surface from underground, especially on hard terrain like ice. It seems like Amikuk use a combination of sound, vibration, and light patterns to identify where the potential target is. Once the prey steps over their burrow, or their hiding position. Amikuk will tear out of the ground from underneath the victim, and they'll burst out from below ground themselves, seizing their prey with their long arms and finishing off with their claws and teeth. It looks like sometimes they'll eat their catch right there on the surface, but often they'll drag it into the tunnels. In the water, Amikuk are no less dangerous. They can swim fast enough to catch kayaks, those inside them, grabbing them and dragging them into the ocean. With a combination of speed and stealth, because of their aggression and habitat, it's very difficult to locate, track, or hunt Amikuk. Unless you are unfortunate enough to stumble upon them by chance, Alaskan native groups have been telling stories of Amikuk for thousands of years. But even they, along with Capital H hunters, know very little about them. And as I've already told you, 
all of us that I mentioned earlier got far too close for comfort. In my last letter, I told a brief story about the time Heather and I saw a pair of Parayuk in Alaska while helping our friend Caroline do some research into aquatic monsters there. In case you missed it, let me just copy and paste what I said about Caroline back then. Caroline is a member of the Alaskan native group known as the Anangan, or the Aleut. Caroline is a two-spirit, a role which is a bit like transgender in many native cultures, including Anangan. Some men take on women's roles and behave as they do, and vice versa. For groups where this is a thing, it really isn't socially or politically controversial. These are just normal people who do different things. For Caroline, she was born male but behaves in most ways like a female, and everybody treats her as a woman. Again, for many native groups, this is usually not very weird or a negative thing. I'll also add that the concept of being a two-spirit is not some newfangled liberal agenda or anything like that. It's been around for at least several hundreds of years, possibly even several thousands of years, and it's an important and awesome part of many native cultures. Caroline is more of a research-oriented hunter rather than a combat one. Although, like my sister Erica, she can certainly shoot better than most people if need be. She was the one who invited Heather to Alaska to help her with her observations. I'll add that she invited Heather not because they knew each other, but because Caroline heard that a new specialist in aquatic cryptids had arrived in the United States and wanted to do some research with her. I also mentioned that Heather and I were in Alaska for almost a year, most of which the time we spent with Caroline. However, as you may remember, way back from my letter about water monsters, I met Heather while on a hunt with William in his home country of Australia. He was one of the first people to kind of push Heather and I together, so to speak, and even though I was closer to him than Heather was, we all got along great. So when I spoke to William to get together that year, he offered to come to Alaska to help us out. The intention was never to do any serious hunts or combat, but just to help Caroline with her studies. As you already know, things didn't stop there. Being from Australia, William obviously isn't very experienced in cold climates. But again, this was supposed to be a research and observation experience and half the time we were on a boat. Anyways, on such a day, we were out on the water counting seals to determine whether the area would be suitable for any predators to hunt, including cryptids. Fun fact, counting animals like this is called doing a game count. While we were on this game count, Caroline got a call from her guide, who doesn't want to be named here. I'll just call her Mariah. We all hung out while they were on the phone with each other, and we began to see Caroline's expression gradually becoming one of concern. After a moment, she put her phone on speaker and placed it on the lid of the bait and tackle crate, and we all gathered around to listen. Mariah, you're on speaker. I've got everyone here. Can you tell them what you were telling me? Caroline asked. As always, I'm doing my best to recreate the exact dialogue and events from the best memory I have. Sure, I'm the guide for several other hunters besides Caroline. If you didn't know, Alaska has some of the highest numbers of hunters anywhere in the world. If you're going on a per capita basis, many of my hunters work the coast, just like Caroline. Two of them have been hunting a problem Wahila in the western part of the state. Wahila rarely leave areas with thicker timber but this one is prowling the coast of the Bering Strait. My two people were out there tracking it when they came across a big ice canyon with some holes down the sides. It's the kind of thing that you wouldn't really notice unless you knew what it meant, Mariah said. William, Heather, and I all looked at each other, equally stumped. Um, so what does it mean? William asked. Amikuk, maybe. We can't be sure until we get out there and see, Caroline said. What is Amikuk? William asked, but I had no idea, so I could not answer. Nobody seemed to hear his question. It could be natural. Ice and snow make weird shapes all the time, Heather commented. Maybe, but from the way my hunters described it, there's enough cause for reasonable doubt, Mariah said from the phone. What's an Amikuk? William asked again, but still nobody seemed to hear him. So you need us to get out there and verify. Heather asked. Yes, those other two are still busy hunting down that razor wolf. So, I'm asking you all if you can look for any Amikuk sign. Mariah answered. Hey, 
What in the god's name is Amikook? What the hell does that mean? William blurted out, which finally got the other's attention. Easy there, cowboy, Heather remarked, which made me burst out laughing, considering what had just happened. We got off the phone with Mariah, and Caroline gave us a crash course on what Amikook were. Heather had heard about them too, but only in passing. Through Caroline's impromptu lecture, we got a decent idea of how these things operate and why they could very well be in the area. If they were there, then any human watercraft in the area would be in danger, as would wildlife, including at-risk species like polar bears. As a hunter, one benefit to being a part of the larger organization is having many people who you can consult for advice. This was one way that Heather and I prepared for our trip to the Congo, for example. And on many tasks, including this one, other hunters can already give you a massive and much-needed lead by telling you about any sign they've seen or sightings they've had. This obviously makes tracking down monsters far easier than starting from scratch. It's also especially beneficial when trying to locate or go after creatures whose traces are hard to find, such as Amikook. We were almost a full day south of the coordinates where the ice crevice was, so our initial plan was to go through the night to arrive at the area by morning. Before we headed out, however, we started thinking about supplies we would need and setting things together. It turns out that we were short on a few important items, namely ice axes and some climbing gear. These weren't necessarily vital, but they would be good to have, and although we have enough for two people, we really wanted enough for everyone. Luckily, Carolyn knew a guy that would be able to supply us with a few items that we needed, at a cheap price and solid quality. But it still took us a boat ride and almost a whole extra day in the opposite direction to get there. Once we had our gear, though, we turned north again and got to our destination with a combination of the boat's high-power engine and a good old-fashioned tailwind. As we had learned before, the crevice was near the Bering Strait region. The Bering Strait is a shallow and narrow body of water that separates Alaska from Russia. It's very important historically because it once used to be dry land, and that provided a pathway between the two places. Most anthropologists and historians agree that this is the way that humans arrived in the Americas, crossing over from Asia. So it's cool that some of my ancestors came through here long, long ago to arrive at their new homeland. The western portion of the strait is off-limits to civilians, but since we were on the Alaskan side, we had no problems getting up the coast and where we needed to go. After mooring our boat in a calm and isolated little cove, we disembarked and started to head inland on foot. The journey mainly took us to the thick sea ice, but occasionally we had to cut through some snowy and rocky areas too. We were heading towards the area of decent elevation, where a cliff bordered the ocean and sea ice formed a small sort of glacier against the shore. This was the tail end of winter, so the sun rose late and set early, giving us around seven hours of daylight. We arrived at about two hours after dawn and took a little less than four to get to the crevice. So when we arrived, the sun was already getting low. We decided to do a quick check on the area before coming back the next day to do a more in-depth investigation. After clambering over the ice, which was taller than the rocky ground in most places, looking around for a while, Caroline found the canyon and called us over. We arrived to see a large cleft in the ground, maybe 15 feet across and twice that in depth, stretching off into the distance for many yards. I didn't take any exact measurements, of course, so these are just guesstimates, but I feel like I'm pretty confident in them. The whole crevice was irregular in shape, so instead of two walls sloping down to form a clean V, it was more jumbled and twisted. The base of the canyon was also wide, so there was a bit of a floor at the bottom. When we spread out to look at the crevice from another angle, we saw that the lower part of the wall dipped back underneath the ice, so that we couldn't see straight down all the way at the very bottom. Although the floor was about 30 feet down and visible, it could have been deeper than beneath the wall. Most notably, however, there are multiple large holes that were on a few of the canyon walls. It was tough to tell between the light and the angle, but the holes appeared huge, most of them seemingly measuring about five feet across. They were mainly set towards the bottom of the crevice, but some were higher up than that, at all different angles and different lengths apart from one another. Looks like a damn brown snake made these. A big brown snake, 
William commented, after we all had taken in the scene. Now I see why they thought this could be an Amiku handiwork. Because this isn't something that just normally happens, Caroline said, shaking her head in disbelief. I couldn't help but note how many holes there were. If each of them was an entrance to a different tunnel, then the overall tunnel system probably was quite extensive. This could mean that there were many Amikuk, but we had no idea. In any case, it was getting darker and darker, and the last thing we wanted to be was out on the ice after dark. We had passed an area where some big chunks of ice and ground against the rocks had formed a jumbled area where we could make camp. By the time we headed out there and set up camp, it was already almost dark, but we were able to get a fire going with some wood. That night, we sat around and eating dinner and talking about how we wanted to approach the situation. They call me the king of the Barbie, back home. I make burgers into art form, William bragged as he started handing out ground turkey that he had cooked. Behold, the Australian man in his natural habitat. I joked, or at least something to that effect, because everybody laughed. Not enough sand or kangaroos, and just a few degrees too cold, William replied. I don't remember him saying that, but he tells me that he did, so I believe him. In any case, it was a laid-back and enjoyable night bonding around the campfire until we settled in for the night. We tried to sleep on the rocks as much as possible rather than on the open ice, and we left the fire smoldering overnight for a bit of warmth it provided. Most importantly, we had a cold-weather tent and arctic sleeping bags, and we slept close together so that our body heat was able to keep us warm inside those. It was very snug, and I was sleeping soundly before I woke up as Heather started moving around beside me. I remember mumbling something like, hold still or stop moving, before Heather put a hand over my mouth to keep me quiet. That got me concerned, and I sat up quickly but quietly, listening intently. Something was moving around outside, shuffling across the ice over the rocks. Outside, the fire glowed very dimly from beneath the large log we put over it to keep it fueled overnight. The moon was getting towards being full, and through the boulders and ice chunks around us, it was blocked out slightly. There was still some natural light to see by, though, but none of this was enough to see through the thick canvas of the tent, so I really had no idea what was outside. The sound of something stepping across the ground was soft but large. We all know large predators can move surprisingly quiet, so that wasn't much to go by. Everyone was awake at this point sitting up in our sleeping bags. To listen, our guns were right outside, and I thought about opening the tent to lunge for mine. We all were looking at each other, pantomiming and mouthing words, but it was so dark inside the tent that this was very ineffective. I wasn't sure exactly what to do. I've had animals go through my camp before, but it's always been for food, and we didn't have much of that to spare right then. On the other hand, I've usually been able to scare animals off, but that was never in polar bear country, or Amikuk country, for that matter. Granted, I have shooed creatures away from my camp in areas where other dangerous animals like big cats and elephants are, but I had no clue how a bear or an Amikuk might react. Pretty soon we began to hear metal clanking. That was almost certainly something rifling through our cooking utensils, and we all froze. Knowing that we had to do something before whatever was outside broke into our food, Heather started to reach slowly for the headlamp, and we all stared in silence while she did so. She flicked the light on and moved closer to the tent window. The headlamp was bright, and I knew that whatever was outside could see the light through the tent wall, because it stopped moving and went silent. We all waited, holding our breath and debating what to do. I was still considering going for my gun and was starting to lean for the door when William waved his hand through the air in a cutting motion clearly telling me no. He then pointed at himself and at the tent door. Although none of us nodded, we didn't refuse him either. I was ready to jump out right behind William, and Caroline and Heather were too, because all of us started crouching by the tent entrance waiting for him to go. He held a hand up with three fingers raised and put one down, then another, and then tore open the tent and sprang out. I was right after him and I leapt for my gun, grabbing it, switching the safety off, and raising it to aim at whatever might be there. In the darkness, I just barely caught sight of something moving off, something shadowy and fast. It was moving off behind a boulder, and I heard William yell something like, What the hell? Neither he or I went after it, but I ran forwards and tried to get a better look. By the time I got there, however, whatever it was, 
had vanished. I think all of us were a bit rattled, because we all went up to William asking, what was that, what did you see, and so on. I have no idea. It was at least a little bit white, whatever it was, and fast, maybe three feet off the ground, William explained. He'd only seen it for a second longer than I had, so that was all the information we had gathered. To this day, we still don't know for certain what was in our camp. It could have been a freakishly large arctic fox or a wolf, a small polar bear, or, or even an amikook. None of these possibilities, especially the last two, were anything to be content with. I lean towards the idea of it being a wolf or amikook, though, because the size lines up with more of those two than it does a fox or a polar bear. Also, in my experience, bears tend to not be very concerned with being stealthy, and whatever was in our camp that night, in any case, was very quiet. We decided to be more careful and set a watch from then on. Usually, we do take turns on watch, but on this occasion we had figured that we were reasonably safe. Even though we still didn't sense any imminent danger, it was better to have someone on guard just in case. After the snafu with our mystery visitor, we had quite a while before dawn. We rotated turns on guard duty while those of us not on watch were able to sleep in because of how late the sun came up. As soon as it was light, we started getting ready to return to the crevice. I had an important job to do. The plan we had come up with was to have me climb down into the canyon and start checking out the tunnels, as well as the area that dropped off at the bottom. I had the most experience in cold weather climbing besides Caroline, and because of our different focuses as hunters, I was more combat savvy than her. William was our next most experienced fighter and our most experienced climber overall so he would come in after me if I discovered anything more that was worth investigating. Heather and Caroline would stay outside to keep an eye on things and to bail us out if needed. We got to the crevice and I got harnessed up to some of our ropes. For this initial recon, I picked out the most important things I would need. The major items I had on me were a bit of food and water, my knives, a few flares, a headlamp, and a pair of ice picks for climbing, called ice axes, my tomahawk, and my shotgun. I thankfully brought the shotgun along, because if I were going to be in some ice caves or tunnels, my usual rifle wouldn't exactly be the best choice of firearm. This was a good deal of equipment, because although William was ready to come in behind me based on my findings, I still wanted to be well stocked in case anything went sideways. Ready? Heather said to me, as I buckled into the harness. I looked over the edge and groaned. It was not about 30 feet down, but I still didn't like it. Yeah, let's do it, I answered. I clambered over the edge and very slowly and carefully began my way down the side of the ice canyon. It was slippery and mostly smooth, but I was able to use my boots, toe spikes, and my ice axes to make handholds and footholds where needed. The harness was only for an emergency, so that I could be snagged if I fell. It is possible to lower someone down in a harness rather than have them climb down, but that takes consistent and significant strength and effort to, on the part of the people who would be lowering me, and I was confident enough in my climbing skills and my own physical capabilities. About halfway down the wall of the crevice, I came level with one of the tunnel entrances. It was close enough for me to clamber over and position myself beneath it, then pull myself up and look inside. As I said before, the hole was probably around three feet across. It was huge, and more than tall enough for me to get in to get a better look. You may be asking why I put my whole upper body inside the hole, so I'll remind you that even with toe spikes, it takes a hell of a lot of strength to hold yourself upright on a vertical wall of ice, and I needed a good look inside the tunnel. Obviously though, I didn't want to go all the way inside, although I probably would have been able to crouch and crawl my way through it. Sam, what the hell are you doing, you drongo? William shouted out from above. I don't even remember him saying that exactly, but he assures me that he did indeed use the term Drongo. Don't worry, I'm not going in, I called back. Yes you are, I heard Heather put in. Okay, not all the way in, I replied, as quietly as I could. It wasn't a great idea to be yelling back and forth, as that would certainly alert the Amikook of our presence, but we all knew that attracting their attention was unavoidable. Their keen hearing and sensitivity to movement and vibrations meant that if they were nearby, they were very likely aware of our presence on the surface, and certainly of me climbing down into the crevice. Again, that was if they were nearby. They may have been somewhere else, but something told me that they were close rather than far. 
I switched on my headlamp and peered into the hole. The tunnel beyond stretched further than the light could illuminate. Going straight back into the darkness, the sides and edges were a bit ragged, not smooth like you would expect from water or wind erosion. This looked like some creature had created it. I listened for a little while. A light wind was blowing past above the crevice, but that sound was somewhat muffled this far down, and all I could hear besides that was the distant creaking of ice in a direction that I could not pinpoint. It could be that nobody was home, or maybe that they were just hiding. After some time, I pulled myself out of the tunnel and started climbing down the canyon once again. On the way, I took a detour to the right downwards to examine another one of the entrance holes, but I met the same results as before. After that, I climbed down the full way to the bottom of the crevice and arrived without any incidents. After that, I climbed the full way to the bottom of the crevice and arrived without incident. As I said before, the walls of the crevice didn't come down to touch in a straight V-shape. There was a wide floor at the bottom, which was relatively flat, although it was a little uneven. I looked around and made sure that everything seemed to be safe before I let go of the canyon wall. The area that curved inward at the base of the other crevice wall I mentioned was almost directly across from where I was, and now that I was on the floor I saw that the other wall curved back into a cavern. I don't remember what I had been expecting, but the sight of the cavern still made me a bit nervous. Enclosed spaces can be dangerous even if you aren't hunting monsters, and especially when they're primarily made of ice. Ice is obviously more prone to shattering and falling apart than stone, and if we were shooting, that might make things even more treacherous. I suppose that dying in an ice cave collapse would at least be quick, but obviously I didn't want that to happen. In any case, the cavern was worth checking out, so I stepped forward and looked inside with my headlamp. Just like the tunnels, the cavern stretched back further than my light could illuminate, and I just had a feeling that it was much bigger than I could see. Okay, it's a cave worth checking out. William, come down here and let's do this, I said, walking back to the main floor of the canyon. William made his way down in his harness while I got out of mine. I had left it on until just now, just in case. But if we were going to go into the cave, there was no use in staying attached to the ropes. Not much could be worse than getting tangled up in ropes in a dangerous situation, or being tethered to ropes that aren't long enough to allow you to move freely if you need to. When William got down to me, he unclipped from his harness as well, and we switched on our lights and started making our way into the cave. From the beginning of this whole thing, I had been hoping that we could find a nest or something of the sort. We had no idea how many Amikook were down here, but it certainly seemed like quite a few, and that would make it very difficult, if not impossible, to tranquilize them all and relocate them. If we were able to destroy something like a nest, however, they would probably move away, likely further out to sea where they'd be less of a threat. Some animals hate certain scents or noises, so that could also be a potential option for driving the Amikook away. Most animals also don't like to be around humans, so if we could scare them off, they would more than likely move further away from us. But first, we had to figure out if there were Amikook in the area at all, and if so, how many. The holes had been proving enough for me, but those could have been old tunnels, and if that was the case, great. But if they were still being used, then we were in quite a different situation. William and I proceeded very carefully into the cave, checking our surroundings and stopping every so often to listen. The cave was very big and extensive, but the walls were overall very smooth, with only a few areas seemingly have been dug out or excavated by hand, or by claw, as it were. The light refracted beautifully off and through the ice in some places, but most of the place was in total darkness. It was like another world down there, and William and I quickly realized that we were going to have to go in deep if we wanted to find anything. We went back to the cave entrance and gave Heather and Caroline an update on things, as well as giving them a time check of four hours. If William and I weren't back within that time, then they were to come down after us themselves. William and I returned to the cave and continued making our way in. It was quite straightforward for the first little while, with only one way to go. The route wound around and twisted, and there were many places where the path got smaller and split around some supporting pieces of ice but it was always coming back together. The ceiling height varied, 
around eight or nine feet high in some places and only four or five in others. The width shifted as well, shrinking to around four feet and growing to around 20. Again, these are just rough estimates. We could tell that, in many places, the cave had been formed by pieces of ice pushing and grinding up against each other, but there were some spots where the stone was visible too. We seemed to be getting higher in elevation, but we knew that the further into the cave we went, the more likely we were getting out into the ocean. Ice doesn't usually form caves in the water, and the sea level here was relatively shallow, but the ocean certainly can press up against ice like this. A couple of times I had to stuff down the nightmarish and maybe unrealistic thought of a wall bursting and the whole cave flooding with seawater. That would be an awful situation, and I didn't even know if it was possible, but I wasn't going to even entertain the notion. The cave began to split more into separate branches as we went on, some of which led to dead ends after only a few yards. But we took one path at random that lasted longer, for a distance. It seemed to go mainly westward, which luckily for us was further inland, and more towards the direction of the crevice and some of its tunnel entrances. As we walked down that way, William started to slow down. Listen, listen, do you hear that? He asked. I strained my ears, but all I heard was the faint creaking and groaning of moving ice. What are you talking about? I asked him. I was whispering, but every word was crystal clear in the atmosphere of the cave. I thought I just heard water, like something falling into a pool, he said, and we stayed quiet for a few more moments, but heard nothing more. Where? I asked him, and he pointed to our right. We slowly began to make our way in that direction and came up to the edge of a cavern. There, what looked at first glance like just an unevenness in the ice, was a little fissure in the wall, just barely big enough to squeeze through. We went up to the gap, and William shone his light through. He then crouched down and took in the scene for a few moments before beckoning me to look. I sighted up the gap, crouched down, and peered in. Beyond was a little sort of grotto, with a much lower roof. Maybe about four and a half feet high on the floor was an open pool of dark, gently sloshing water. And if I was seeing it correctly, there looked to be a pair of tunnel entrances on the wall behind the pool. After making sure of what I had seen, I pulled back and looked to William, who looked concerned. That could be a way that they're getting out to sea. It kind of looks like a docking area, like in a beaver lodge, I theorized to him. He shook his head. I don't know much about beaver lodges, mate, he answered. Don't worry about it. Those tunnels must connect to the system that we saw the entrances to in the crevice, I added. Then let's keep moving through this cave. See if it links up to the tunnels, and see where they might lead us, William said. I figured that this was our best bet, but I looked at my watch and saw that we only had about an hour and a half left until we had to get back to check in with the ladies. I don't think we have the time, I told him. Then let's check back in and come right back. We've got a lead here, William said. I could see him getting excited. At the same time, I was cognizant of the fact that we didn't have much daylight. That didn't matter so much down here, but on the surface, it was cold enough during the day and in the dark. Heather and Caroline would lose heat fast. It wasn't safe to be out there too long without cover. We all had heat packs and warm clothes, but I knew that would only help us for so long. Okay, let's move fast then, I agreed. We returned to the crevice quickly and checked in and found that Heather and Caroline had built a small ice shelter where they could keep the fire going with some limited fuel and supplies. That made me feel much better about them staying warm, although I still didn't want to be in the caves for too long. After touching base with the two of them, I had, I had them send down some extra food and ropes, because now it looked like we were going to be down here for quite a bit longer. William and I turned back into the cave. We were almost back to where we had spotted the fissure when we both clearly heard a sound from further ahead. It sounded like scraping, or maybe swishing, but it was certainly the sound of something moving across the ice, maybe being dragged. We both froze, guns immediately raised and ready to go. For maybe a minute or two, which felt like ages, we remained still, listening and watching, but there was nothing more. Eventually, we hesitantly put our weapons away and continued forward. When we arrived at the fissure again, William stopped me and started edging towards the gap. 
Are you going in there? I asked him, starting to get ready to talk him out of it. Just to look, if there's anything we missed, he said, starting to take off some of his gear so that he could squeeze through the gap. You know that's probably not a good idea, right? Why am I even telling you this? I said, sighing. Once William makes up his mind to do something, it's rare that anybody can stop him, though. Look, you stuck your head in a tunnel. Now I'm going to one-up you a bit, William joked. Passing me his ice axes, I took the ice picks, and all I could really do was shake my head and watch as William slid into the fissure and into the small cave beyond. I watched through the crack and saw him pace around a bit, looking all around the area, and even crouching to go a little bit way into the burrow opening that were on the opposite sides of the pool from me. He looked into the water as well, but not for long. It was probably too dark to see anything. After he was done searching, he squeezed back out of the fissure and came back to me. Nothing new. Let's keep going out of here and see if this path takes us any closer to those tunnels, he suggested. We resumed our journey through the larger, main cavern area, but we hadn't gone very far before we came across a strange and gruesome sight. William was slightly ahead of me, and he stopped and reached for his gun, which made me do the same, before I heard him make a noise that was halfway between a gasp and a surprised, nervous chuckle. N no look at this right here, he said waving forward. Lying on the ice smack dab in the middle of the cave was a dead Amikook, or what was left of one. The monster laid on its side, sprawled out across the ground. Most of its stomach and lower body were missing, leaving its shell head, and upper halves to its limbs intact. Its mouth was slightly agape, and its teeth were still split into a haunting grin. The remains were entirely frozen and practically fused to the ice beneath them. In such frigid environments like this, decomposition takes a very long time. So, we had almost no idea of exactly how long this Amikook had been there. However, the parts that were missing from the body were soft areas, which would be quicker to decompose, or to be eaten. Given the low temperature and the isolated, sheltered nature of the cave, William and I quickly concluded that the body had probably been partially scavenged and eaten, likely by its family, Amikook. We have to be getting close to some kind of main den if there is here, William said as we examined the body. I was inclined to agree, but I didn't want to say anything definite yet. I think so, but we don't know how this one died. I noted. We tossed a couple of hypotheses. We both thought that the Amikook had probably died of old age or illness, but it was possible that it had been killed, and if so, almost certainly by its own kind. We have no idea if Amikook would do this to each other, but it certainly seemed possible. William and I took the opportunity to put the fresh heat packs into our gloves, jackets, and boots as we discussed this and I think both felt a little more awake after the discovery. Now, we knew that Amikook had been active in the area at least somewhat recently, and they were very likely still here. After refreshing our heat packs, we continued onwards. The ground began to slope steadily upwards, and the path began to wind around and grow smaller and tighter. We eventually came to a place that seemed close to a surface, because it looked like the faint, dying sunlight was coming in from the ice above. As we continued walking, we suddenly heard the first sound in the world at that moment. The sound that you absolutely do not want to hear when you're in a cave beneath thousands of pounds of ice and stone. From somewhere beneath us, we caught the sound of ice cracking. William and I both stopped dead in our tracks and looked at each other. But an instant later, the sound came again. The entire floor gave way beneath us. I firmly believe that the Amikook were responsible for this collapse and I think they had intentionally weakened the supporting ice and rock around the area where William and I were standing. They couldn't have been directly underneath us, because they would have brought the floor down directly on top of themselves. Instead, they were probably a good distance off of the edge of the path where William and I had been standing, destabilizing the edges of the area so that our weight would bring down the center. And that's exactly what happened. With almost no warning, from the time we heard the ice cracking to the time the floor collapsed, it couldn't have been any more than a few seconds. I don't know how much the floor caved in, but if it was enough so that William and I dropped down through the ice with essentially no time to react. This is the part of the story that I really don't remember all the details of, and which is going to be a little difficult for me to tell because it was so chaotic and so sudden that I didn't entirely know or remember exactly what had happened. 
But soon after the fact, William and I worked together to try to explain it, and we both took a lot of notes as soon as we were able to. I've also, of course, been talking to him about this letter. So, here's what we put together from our memories and our notes. First, William and I fell through the ice, which crumbled and dropped out from beneath us. We probably fell no more than six or seven feet before we hit solid ice again. But the area where we landed was a slope, and now, we went sliding downwards. I have no clue how long we wound up sliding for, but it was so fast that neither of us were able to get our ice axes out and stop ourselves. We dropped off one more ledge and fell a few more feet before hitting solid ground again. Miraculously and very fortunately, neither William's guns nor mine went off during this whole thing, but I got injured from the fall itself. At some point, I twisted my ankle and scraped my side badly along the way, to the point to where I was bleeding down the area of my body. Although, I can't exactly remember the moment. I think it was when we had landed on the slope that I briefly regained my footing before falling again. As I instinctively reached out to catch myself, all my weight slammed right onto my left hand and my dominant one, which sent a shock up through my arm and into my elbow and shoulder. By the time we stopped falling and sliding, I was in a ton of pain and unable to do pretty much anything except lay there on the ice trying to recover. William was luckier than I, though, because he only suffered a few bruises. It was a good thing that he only suffered that much because things were about to get a whole lot worse. Even though I was reeling and hurt, I was still conscious of other things besides the pain. People in many different lines of work learn how to keep aware of their surroundings under stressful situations, and this is a critical skill for hunters as well. Because of this and because our headlamp somehow hadn't been damaged in the fall, I was able to get a vague idea of the area we had landed. It was small because I could quite clearly make out the walls with my light, and the ceiling that remained across from the hole we fell through was maybe about eight feet high. The more stomach-churning part was the ground which was covered with a bunch of misshapen objects that I couldn't recognize at first. But I wasn't focused on that. Right now, I had injuries to tend to. I sat up, eyes watering in tears of pain as I gingerly felt my side with my uninjured arm. Blood had begun to soak into my clothing. This was going to be a serious temperature control hazard if I didn't do something about it fast. I looked over to William, who was also groaning in pain as he stood up. Are you alright? I asked him, and he briefly felt his arm and sides before nodding. Just bruised you? He asked me before I saw his expression change as he ran over to me. Not so lucky. My side's bleeding, and I twisted my ankle and rattled my arm. I explained as William crouched down at my side. Get your jackets and shirt off. We need to, we need to bind the bleeding spot immediately. William told me, starting to fumble around at his side and bringing out all the rolls of bandages. I was very glad he had brought them, because I certainly hadn't. As I started bracing myself for the cold that was going to hit me when I started getting undressed, we suddenly heard movement from the shadows. A lot of movement. William and I both seized our guns and aimed at the shadows where the movement was coming from. It turned out that there was a tunnel there, very near to where we had landed. Then we heard one of the most blood-curdling sounds I'd ever heard in my life, and which I still sometimes hear in my nightmares to this day. It was high-pitched, which sounded very much like a demented version of laughter. It's very difficult to do the sound justice with words, and I can't even replicate it accurately myself, but it sounded like a warped version of a child giggling, or more like several children giggling. Because the sound echoed off the walls, floor, and ceiling to a point where we knew the sound had to be coming from multiple sources, it was truly one of the most disturbing and terrifying noises I had ever heard in my life, and it was only made worse by the overall situation we were in. And it was only the beginning of the nightmare, because as you might expect, this sound was being made by multiple Amikuk heading right for us. I have no idea how many cryptids there were. I feel like there were ten or more but William believed that there were probably no more than six or seven at this point. He had a better view of the action, so I guess his guess is probably more accurate than mine. However, many there were. We saw our lights reflecting off multiple pairs of glowing red-orange eyes in the tunnel that branched off the room we were in, and we both opened fire in that location. High-pitched, almost human shrieks began echoing through the cave with the sound of gunfire, after letting off only a few rounds, I found myself unable to keep shooting 
pain spiking through my injured arm and shoulder every time my shotgun jumped back with recoil. I was gritting my teeth, but it wasn't enough to make the pain bearable. After maybe three or four shots, I inadvertently lost my grip on the gun, and I tried to grab it with my unhurt arm, knowing that I probably wasn't going to be able to shoot much more. All this happened in maybe about 10 seconds. When I turned back to the tunnel, I saw a pair of Amikuk scuttling towards us, their long and spindly limbs and grinning faces now very clearly visible. One flinched backwards as blood from William's bullet sprayed from its face, and I managed to get off another shot at the other Amikuk before I collapsed in pain. There was no way I was going to be able to keep shooting like this, and I was in the act of pulling my tomahawk out when I suddenly felt a pair of cold hands grab my shoulders, and long claws pressed down on my jacket. Somehow, despite having my back against a wall, an Amikuk had gotten behind me and burst out the ice. I struggled against its grip as hard as I could, but almost as soon as it had gotten a hold of me, the monster yanked me backwards, throwing me onto the ground. I hit the ice, seeing stars as I did, and was able to raise my tomahawk over my face just in time for the weapon to collide with some part of the Amikuk, presumably its head, which it was probably lowering to bite me. I shoved my tomahawk up, out, and as hard as I could, but I only hit empty air, and I saw the Amikuk's face out of the corner of my eye, teeth bared. I finally thought to call William's name, but before I could do so, I saw my friend's ice axe sink right into the Amikuk's head. William had brought no weapons beside a few knives and a carbine, and in order to not hit me with his bullets, this fearless madman came at the Amikuk, swinging his goddamn ice pick like a medieval warhammer. I didn't have the time to move, but I felt proud of him. But boy, do I feel proud now even more. It was a crazy desperate move, but somehow it worked. William saved my life right then, and saved it afterwards too, as you'll see, and I'll never forget it. He grabbed me by the front of my jacket and dragged me to a standing position, which sent a fresh wave of pain through me as I stepped on my injured foot. I staggered, but I didn't fall, and I put most of my weight on my unhurt leg, slashing my tomahawk at multiple Amikuk that were closing in on us with their demented smiles. I know that I hit at least one of the cryptids because I felt the head of my tomahawk slice into the flesh and get stuck for a moment before I tore it loose. Between the gunfire and the Amikuk shrieking, I had practically gone deaf, but I could still hear the muffled giggling sounds of the creatures as they lunged at us. But William and I weren't backing down, and we put our steel between us. The creatures continued to reach out and snap at us. I can vividly recall hacking into the clawed arm of one of them as it tried to swipe at me. Because it screamed and spun away, gnashing its teeth. When we had an opening... William picked up his gun and started shooting again, and the Amikuk scattered, skittering away like enormous spiders with tails as they raced back down the tunnel. William gunned down one of the monsters as it ran, before it got very far down the tunnel. When I heard the dampened sound of his gunfire stop, I limped forwards as quickly as possible and brought my tomahawk down into the creature's skull just to make sure it was dead. I dropped to my knees after doing so, breathing hard and feeling the blood surging through my body and streaming down my side. I was so exhausted and in pain, and again, if William had not been there, it's almost certain that I never would have made it out of those caves, and he saved me by doing more than just fighting by my side. I heard him say something, but I was still deaf from the tremendous level of echoing that had sounded. Even though the noise had thankfully stopped now, I still didn't understand him. He came forward to me. Together, we started tending to our wounds on the now blood-soaked ice, for his part, William had a nasty claw wound on his calf, and he jokingly tells me that the Amikuk softened his leg up enough that the Blue Mountain Cat could tear it to pieces later. That was the worst injury between us, so we bandaged that up first. Next, we wrapped a bandage tightly around my torso to stop the bleeding from my side that had been scraped in the fall and made a makeshift sling out of a big cloth rag to hold my injured arm. Unfortunately, we didn't have anything we could use to make a splint for my ankle, so that just had to wait. As we worked on dealing with our injuries, my hearing slowly began to return, and I noticed that our movements were making unusual crunching noises on the ground below us. When I looked down, I practically gag. The small cave in which we had landed was essentially a larder. Besides three Amikuk that we had killed, many other carcasses had remained littered in the ice, most of them frozen solid and barely intact, clearly had being eaten. 
I doubt that the Amikuk had intended for us to fall exactly into that area, so it was probably just a disturbing coincidence that we did. Okay, we need to get the hell out of here, William said after we had both been bandaged up. I looked at my watch, but the face had been shattered at some point. This was before I got the hardcore Garmin GPS watch that I use now. This watch still technically worked, but because of the face being broken, I just couldn't tell the time. My watch is shot. What time is it? I asked William. He told me, and although neither of us can remember the exact time, we both agree that it was sometime around 7.30. We had told Heather and Caroline that if they had not heard us by 9, that they needed to come after us. That gave us a clear answer as to what we had to do. There were only two ways for us to go, forward through the tunnel or back up the way we came. We had no idea where the tunnel led, and there was no way in hell that I was climbing anywhere with both my arm and leg out of commission, and William and I were not going to risk splitting up. However, Heather and Caroline would certainly be able to find the massive hole in the ice above us if they came after us, so our best bet was to honestly wait for them to come. So we checked our ammo, reloaded, and settled in to wait. It's never a good idea just to sit there somewhere in the cold for an extended period, but we didn't even really have a choice. Every so often, we would hear movement, and we would try to huddle up and move around to keep warm ourselves, or at least I would do that as best as I could with my ankle. We also swapped in the last remaining sets of our heat packs. Those things certainly work, but in those conditions, they never seemed to last more than a few hours. It was brutally cold. At some point, I recall William joking that he never should have left Australia, and I responded by saying that if anyone should have been complaining, it was me, being half black, which made us laugh. At some point, we began to hear movement in the tunnel again, and we both raised our guns and aimed it at the entrance. Me trying to do my best to somehow hold my gun with my arm still in its sling, from behind to the side of us, scratching and scraping began to come from the walls of the cave, and I turned around to try to watch our flanks. The Amikuk, that had burst out from the wall earlier, had nearly killed me, and I refused to get jumped from behind again. At some point, I thought that I saw movement behind the walls, and I let loose two shots into the ice, blasting chunks of it away, and thanking all the gods that the pellet spray did not ricochet and hit any of us. The noise from that direction went silent, but I saw nothing there. Meanwhile, the sounds from the tunnel were increasing in volume, and William fired several rounds in that direction. The sounds paused, but only for a moment, and then they resumed. I also turned to face the tunnel. Our lights bounced off their orange eyes. We both started shooting, the eyes vanished, and we heard clawed feet skittering away across the ice. How long do you think it'll be before they find us? I asked William. I don't know, I just hope it's soon, he answered. The next hour was so incredibly tense. It seemed like the Amikuk would never give up. We heard them giggling in the darkness, tapping and scratching at the walls around us and moving through the tunnel nearby. Anytime either of our lights caught something that might have been an eye, we would take a few shots, only for the sounds to stop for a moment and then resume. This cycle continued for what we felt like were ages, and it was mind-numbing. In addition to the physical numbing of the cold, things got worse when we suddenly heard movement from behind us and above us and looked up to see two Amikooks scuttling down from the ice from a hole overhead coming down the slope straight at us. Both of us started sending up rounds, and we managed to drop one of the monsters, which nearly fell on top of us as it died and dropped off the wall. The other creature made it in closer, but William took a few swings at it with his axe, and it went shrieking away to somewhere that we couldn't see. The creature that had fallen was still twitching, lying on its back on the floor, and I moved over to finish it off with my tomahawk. It probably heard me approaching, because it started to writhe around and nearly knocked me off my feet with a tail swipe. I backed up trying to keep my weight off my injured foot, and the Amikook rolled onto its side and lashed out with one clawed hand. It evidently hadn't learned the lesson that I had taught its friend earlier. As it swept its claws out, I brought my tomahawk around an uppercut and cut off its hand and part of its spindly arm. It flailed around, sending blood everywhere, and I sidestepped while it was vulnerable and sunk my tomahawk into its neck. It took a few seconds for it to die, but eventually it fell still and I backed up to clean my blade and wipe myself clean of the blood as much as possible. I felt sickened and sad. I find no joy in killing anything, even cryptids as creepy and as vicious as these. This was just a creature that was trying to survive, but it was putting others at risk, and I was handling it the best way I could. Sam, stop, you're going to kill yourself. Let me handle it next time, 
William told me as I staggered away from the body. I checked my sign and found that I was still bleeding. William was right. I needed to take it easy. The next development came when there was near repeat of the initial assault. Multiple Amicook started crowding the tunnel again, and at least two others started trying to come through the walls again, this time from higher above us instead of directly behind us. We had no idea how many of these monsters there were, but they were clearly throwing themselves at us in waves, not committing their entire numbers in any single attack. It was scarily intelligent because they were obviously trying to wear us down over time. And it was working, because although they couldn't have known this, every shot I took made the injury to my arm even worse. It was strange because the kickback of a shotgun generally hits your shoulder more than anything else, but since that was hurt along with my arm and elbow, every time I pulled the trigger I felt like those areas of my body were exploding. I turned away from the tunnel to start shooting at the ones coming through the ice, and I got one in the head, blowing its grinning face to pieces. Around this point I felt my arm begin to go numb, and I started losing muscle control. I dropped my shotgun as the army cook in the walls pulled back. I can't keep this up. I said half to myself and half to William. We'd driven the army cook back with more gunfire, but they weren't going to be gone forever. Oh no, you're going to destroy your arm yourself, not the army cook. Here, William said, handing me a flare gun. I took it and groaned. This was the best we had right now, but it really, really didn't seem like enough. I was dead wrong on that count. If you've listened to my Wendigo letter, you might recall that I was able to burn a Wendigo alive by hitting it with a tracer round. Tracer rounds are not like flares, you know what I mean? But Wendigo is apparently incredibly flammable. And, as it happened, so were these creatures. It wasn't long before we heard giggling from the tunnel again, and as soon as I thought I saw an eye shine, I fired the flare down the hallway. Immediately everything burst into complete pandemonium. I had landed a shot squarely in an army cook's face, and in an instant, the cryptid's entire body exploded into flames which only spread as it started rushing around madly. In the light of the flames, we could see multiple other creatures and their corpses in the tunnel, most of which quickly caught fire as the burning Amicook met them. The other living Amicook in the hall screamed and began to flee from the burning one, but several of them got scorched in the process. In only an instant, the entire tunnel was filled with burning, screaming, flailing creatures, and in only about a minute after that, all the movement and sound had stopped. Nearly all the Amicook laid motionless on the ground, flames still raging at their corpses. Whether any others had escaped the inferno, we didn't know, but these ones were more than out of the fight. Fire. Fireworks. William muttered, No kidding, I spoke. Acrid smoke began to fill the tunnel, along with a terrible stench, but William and I were able to waft the smoke down the tunnel away from us using our jackets. The tunnel was only three feet tall or so, and once we'd started fanning the smoke away from our cave, it was easy enough to keep doing so. So we wouldn't be able to do that forever. So I looked around and figured what we could put the chunks of broken ice that surrounded us to good use. While William continued to blow the smoke away, I started collecting pieces of the ice with my good arm. I wrapped my face wrap around my nose and mouth and squinted my eyes as I squatted into the tunnel and started piling the ice between us and the flaming corpses. I could feel the heat of my skin as I got close, but I only stayed there long enough to start making a makeshift wall. There wasn't enough ice to finish it, but so at a certain point I had to use my ice axe to hack additional chunks off the walls to complete it. It took a little while, but eventually I was able to build a little wall of ice between the flames in the tunnel and the cavern where we were, thus blocking most of the smoke. I was concerned that the flames would melt the ice to the point that where it would cause a collapse, but if it happened, it would be unlikely to spread to the cavern where we were so I felt a little bit safe. For the rest of our time in the cave, William and I just spent it talking and moving around when we needed to keep warm. Every so often we would change our bandages, but since the bleeding had stopped, we were going to be okay until we could get better medical attention. We were both exhausted, but we tried to keep up the conversation and the movement so that we stayed awake and aware. When we were warm enough for the moment, and to much of our relief, there were no more Amicook attacks. Maybe we had killed them all, or maybe we had just scared them so badly that they weren't going to return. I tend to think the latter is true. It just doesn't seem likely to me that all of those creatures had been caught in the tunnel. Whatever the case, we waited for a while longer, until finally we heard Heather and Caroline calling us from overhead. We answered, and they were able to drop ropes for us to get back up with. 
With a combination of ropes, ice axes, and upper body strength, we were able to work together so that William and I were able to half climb, half get carried out of the cavern. Heather practically tackled me in a hug as soon as I came out, and greeted William only a little less enthusiastically. We were both banged up and run down, but we were alive, and we were able to take a similar approach to get out from under the ice. The two ladies went up first and helped William and I get out. We went back to the camp for the night because it was too dark and we were too exhausted to travel back to the boat. But first thing in the morning, we went back to our trusty vessel and took off to get to a hospital. And that's about the end of the story. It was a terrifying and grueling experience, but it all ended up being okay. William and I both healed very well from our injuries, although it took me months before I was able to walk without crutches and use both of my arms like before. As for the Amikuk, it looked like they disappeared from the area after this hunt. There were no further sightings of them, and the wildlife and humans in the area were all quite healthy. I think that if there were any that survived both the fire and our weapons, they probably moved far away from that place because we had well and truly terrified them. Caroline and her guide Mariah and their other hunters kept close eye on that region, and Caroline alone has the eyes of a hawk, so I doubt that the Amikuk would have been in that area ever since this incident. So, there you have it. The hellish experience that William and I had in some ice caves in Alaska. We fought side by side like the brothers we are. Despite the horror and pain of that hunt, I still don't look back on it with too much negative feeling. William saved my life and I always will be grateful, even after he's gone. I won't forget. Like I said, Serena and I will be on our way to see him and Rain very soon, and we want to make the most of that time. However confusing and happy and sad and mixed up it might be, but William has repeatedly told me not to make this letter too sappy, and I fully admit that I can get like that sometimes. So that's all for now. I'll update you guys as soon as things go on. Stay safe and keep at it, guys. We'll talk more soon. This has been Sam White Owl, signing out.